Well, do take your Bibles and let's turn together to Acts chapter 10 and the reading we read earlier this evening. I heard this afternoon about a famous kibbutz in Israel, which is unusual uh, because it is the only kibbutz in all Israel that rears and sells pig meat. Now, you may not know that pork is uh, forbidden to Jews, and therefore this created quite a stir in Israel. In fact, the complaints were so great that the issue came before the Knesset, the uh, Israeli parliament. They promulgated a new law. The new law states that uh, pigs cannot be raised on Israeli soil. So what this kibbutz did was they poured a huge tablet of concrete in their property and they continue to this day to rear pigs in Israel, selling pork to Jews who are breaking their own food laws and to Arabs who are breaking their own food laws and to Christians who gladly eat pork anytime they can get a hold of it. So my subject tonight is not so much why it is that Christians don't eat kosher or halal, but the reason they don't do that definitely begins with this little section here, though that's not the most important thing about this section this evening. So when we've read this, you can go home and you can luxuriate in having bacon sandwiches before you go to bed tonight, and you'll feel that your conscience is clear doing that. Anyway, let's, let's look at the passage before us. It's a story that we began looking at last time, the story of Peter and this man Cornelius, and the visit that Peter makes to Cornelius' home. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. Peter is a Jewish man. He is one of the leading spokesmen for the early Christians, and he finds himself in the home of a Gentile, one of the most uh, one of the things that would never happen really at, in that period that a Jewish man would find himself in the home of a Gentile. Now it's interesting that before we kind of dive in to look at the passage itself, that there is a parallel action going on here in the story with the Old Testament, the, that in the New Testament history, and Acts is the only history we have in the New Testament, in the New Testament history, this man Cornelius is the equivalent in terms of his significance in the story to another pagan, non-Jew, Gentile, pig-meat-eating, you know, scum-of-the-earth, unclean person that we find in the Old Testament whose life is turned around similarly to this man Cornelius by an intervention of God, a direct intervention of God, a revelation from God, and uh, God's call and claim upon his life and God's word to him. That man in the Old Testament is Abraham. Abraham does not start out as a Jew because there were no Jews then because he hasn't had any children at that stage, and the Jews are all going to come from him. But at the time you meet Abraham, he is a Gentile. He is a pagan, idol-worshipping, pork-eating, unclean, uncircumcised, cart-carrying Gentile. And this man, Cornelius, is in the same category as Abraham. And in the New Testament, this is the first major Incident. This is a turning point. It's so important, two chapters of the book of Acts are given to telling the story of Cornelius. So it's a very important 
moment. And it's a turning point because here at this moment we discover that the future of the Christian movement is set on a new course. It is under the authority of the risen reigning Lord Jesus. He's doing a work of recreation. And you can see just how far this recreation is going to go by this significant action that takes place here. Well, let's dive into the story then. We begin in verse 23 when Peter has made his way to the place where Cornelius lives. He comes into Cornelius' home and he is greeted by Cornelius falling down at Peter's feet. It was a spontaneous act of honor to a guest and to some significant person in his life. It was well known in the ancient world that you did this. It's profoundly significant because here is a Roman, a member of an elite force, here is a, a member of the occupying army of Rome in this area showing deference to a Jewish fisherman. He isn't even a rabbi. He's a fisherman. But it wasn't just that he was a, he was a Gentile honoring a Jew. That was one thing. In this passage, of course, Cornelius is honoring Peter because he is the spokesman. He is a messenger from God. How does he know that? Well, he knows that because he's had a vision. With his eyes wide open, in the middle of the day, he has seen an angel. An angel of God has come to Cornelius. And this angel of God has spoken to him and given him directions, sent, given him the very name and address of the person that he must send for in another town. And he sent his people off. They found this guy and they brought him back. And here he is. The angel talked about this man who's standing before him, Peter. You've had a supernatural moment. You've had a supernatural fulfillment. You now have a man standing in front of you that has the imprimatur of the supernatural upon him. What do you do? Well, in, your, in the first century, you, you get scared and you bow down. You bow down in deference before this person. And you can see him do that. In fact, this spontaneous act immediately fulfills a prophecy in the Old Testament that Gentiles will come to Jews and they will bow down before Israel and confess, you have the word of God, surely God is with you. Here is the first great fulfillment of that prophecy in the New Testament. And what the centurion did instinctively is what we are tempted to do in the presence of someone we admire. We may not physically bow down in front of them, but we mentally do. We mentally fuss over them because that's the way we show our deference to them. But I want you to notice how... Peter reacted. That's really what I want you to see. He was weirded out by the whole experience. That's a, an English word. Uh, he is weirded out by the whole experience and he sees this bowing down before him as a threat to the majesty of God and the glory of Christ. You see that? Peter lifts him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. I'm only human. Don't bow before me. I know that you think because you had a supernatural vision of an angel, that, that this is a supernatural work of God. But I'm only natural. I'm just ordinary flesh and blood. Don't do to me what you would do to God. Finally, that's one of the things we find over and over again in the New Testament. When people meet angels or a messenger of God, sometimes they're so overwhelmed by this sense of the supernatural that they are spontaneously bowing down before them the same way this man does. Now this little incident here, just before I pass over it, has some relevance in terms of our view of the church generally because you will know that the Roman church introduced into Christianity various levels of honor 
or reverence. Uh, they, they have three levels. They have latria, a form of worship or honor that is due only to God, to God alone. Dulia, which is the veneration that is shown to saints and images and icons. And then hyperdulia, which is the reverence that is shown, the elevated reverence and veneration that is shown to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Now, the Reformers, at the time of the Reformation, they questioned this whole approach because you're actually looking at someone who is showing latria dulia or hyperdulia, not hypertension, but hyperdulia. When you show and look at these people who are actually doing this stuff, you can't tell the difference. Looking at them, you can't tell. And frankly, you ask them, they can't actually tell the difference between the reverence they're showing to an image or the reverence they're showing to a saint that they're praying to or a reverence they're showing to God. They can't tell the difference. And the reformers said, here is a distinction without a difference. Here is a distinction without a difference. Calvin said that when people bow in the knee and ask for help and intercession from a saint, and they bow before an image, they've crossed the line. They've crossed an intellectual, mental line and a spiritual line into worship, into false worship. And I know it's not popular to say this, but people who engage in that kind of thing and that kind of reverence for things and for people in, in the way in which it's done in the Roman church are engaging in worship of idols. It is an idolatrous form of worship. Ecumenism apart. That's, that's the bottom line. You can tell them I said that. Because Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. We've got to make it absolutely clear that we are worshiping only Jesus. Nobody should get confused. Nobody should get confused in the way we react to people. Whether the people are dead or not, we should worship only Jesus. So, that's why Peter reacts here. He wants, you want to know what side Peter's on in the Reformation? This is the side he's on. I'm only a man. Get up. Don't, don't even think about acting like that towards me, he says. Well, we look at that, and then we move on then. I want to say that the critique of the unreformed church there was just a free bit that I just threw in there. What is the message of this passage today? There are two points in the message, so as you know when we're going to finish. The two points are simply these. Everyone may become a Christian and everyone must become a Christian. That's the lesson of this passage. First of all, everyone may become a Christian. Look at verses 28-29. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is. This, is. this is Peter's very sensitive introduction to this Gentile man who's quite influential, by the way. Uh, uh, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. <laughs> so when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I ask you therefore why you sent for me. Now, you say, that's, that's really good. Somebody comes into your house and they say, I'm quite pleased to be here because God's told me that I'm not to think of anybody as common or unclean. Normally I wouldn't be here. Normally I wouldn't come into your house. Normally I wouldn't be here for dinner. But, but God's shown me it's okay for me to be here this evening. Can you imagine saying that to someone? Well, you know, that's precisely what Peter is saying to this man. You go back, roll the clock back to the first century, and that is precisely how the Jews then lived and still do today, the, the, the practicing Jews. 
If you were Cornelius and you were a Gentile, you would find so many roadblocks on the road to becoming one of the people of God. One of them being the biblical rules on food. You were not cooking food the way it should be cooked. You were eating stuff they would not eat. Devon, my favorite seafood place out there, would go out of business. It couldn't produce. It couldn't cook some of the stuff if, if we were living in this kind of setup today. Gentile possessions. You bought a Gentile car, you couldn't use it until it had been purified. Somebody had gone over it with a fine tooth comb and made sure that absolutely everything of the Gentile wasn't present in that car before you could even drive it. It would be a nightmare scenario. And Peter knows that's the case, and he's talking to Cornelius. He knows Cornelius knows that is the case. So he has to explain why it is that he, a Jew, is now in a Gentile's home. And he gives them some reasons. Let's look at these reasons. Everyone may become a Christian, first of all, because no one is common or unclean. That's what Peter is saying. Here's why it is we, we recognize that reformed distinction between the various kinds of law that you find in the Old Testament. You find the moral law of God, that remains the same. It's rehearsed, repeated over and over again in the New Testament, applied to Christians. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, is unalterable. It's eternal. It is the statement of what God is like and what God's will is from humanity. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, it is a description of God and it's a description of what God requires of man. The moral law of God. The ceremonial law, on the other hand, was only ever transitional and temporary. It was meant to prepare the way for the arrival and the coming of the one who would do all the things towards which the, the ceremonial law pointed. The ceremonial law was put in place to deal with the fact that the people who are living under the moral law of God fail. They sin. What do you do if you fail and you sin? How do you get that dealt with in your, in your life? How do you get clean again if you're dirty? How do you get right with God again if you've broken that rightness with God? Well, the ceremonial law told you how to do that. Part of the ceremonial law was this clean-unclean thing. There were some things that were okay, kosher for you to use, and other things that were not. It built into the system so that you realized God wants His people to be different from the world. It was a way of preserving them in the midst of a world that was increasingly trying to squeeze them into its mold. And God is preserving those people. Part of the way He preserves the Jews until the arrival of the Jew who will save the world is through the ceremonial laws. But now you see, all that's gone. Peter announces it to this man. He says, all of that whole thing, that whole ceremonial thing has now been blown apart by the grace of God. Something has happened. And I'm about to tell you what it is. Peter says, not yet. I just want you to know the effect of it right now is that I can come into your home and I no longer look on you as common and unclean. I no longer think of you in the terms with which I was brought up to think about you. I no longer keep you at arm's length. Why? Because you're no longer common and unclean because God has said so. Here's the first thing. Anyone may become a Christian because no one, no one is common or unclean. Everyone may become a Christian, secondly, because God has sent forth His Word into the world. Let me remind you of how Cornelius got this man here in the first place. An angel had come to visit him. He tells us in verse 30, a little bit more information. The angel, when he came, wore bright clothing. That, that is not to say that he was wearing all stangly tops and stuff, just that he was illuminated by this heavenly light. It wasn't, he, he didn't appear, this angel did not appear in normal human 
uh, civil, civilian clothes, but rather he came in all the splendor of an, of an angel's normal attire. He appeared in this heavenly form to this man. And that scared the living daylights out of him. Angels always do when they appear like that to people. They always scare the living daylights out of them. He was afraid. So the man has received this information from an angel, a visitation from an angel, and now he says, look in verse 33. Now he says, Now therefore, he says to Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say to us. I want you to see what Cornelius is, being, is saying here. He is saying to this man, Peter, hearing the word from you, hearing the message you have to bring to us today, is as much an experience of the presence of God as it was for me to have an encounter with an angel in a heavenly form in that vision that God gave to me. Hearing the word of God from you, from your lips, is as much an activity or an action of God as the supernatural thing that happened a few days ago when I saw a vision of an angel appear and speak to me. Now that's important, isn't it? It means this. The implications are these. That the ordinary, what we choose to call the ordinary means of grace, that is the ordinary proclamation of the Word of God, the, the ordinary preaching of the Gospel, is as important, as significant, as, as relevant as a supernatural, spectacular event could ever be. Don't despise the ordinary means of grace. Don't so hunger and thirst in your heart after something special and out of the ordinary and out of this world that you become dissatisfied with the one means of grace that God speaks clearly into the human heart. That's why Paul, when he's writing to the Thessalonians, these early Christians, one of the earliest letters he writes, he says to them, we thank God continually for this, that when you received us, you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, not as the word of human beings, but as it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. You see, everybody may become a Christian because God has sent his word into the world, that word of salvation into the world. Thirdly, everyone may become a Christian, may become a Christian, because God does not show favoritism. Look at verses 34 35. Because here we have uh, uh, the kind of the, the outflow from the dream that Peter had received, the vision that Cornelius had received, led Peter, bringing those two things together, to come to the conclusion, do you notice? The conclusion that God does not show partiality. Let me read it to you. Verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now this teaching was already in the Bible. Peter, in one way, is not saying anything new. It's already there in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So you love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is not partial. 
So when Peter says God shows no partiality, he is merely expounding the Old Testament scriptures here. Because although God had given a special status to Israel and a special role to Israel, God had from the earliest days declared his intentions to bless the nations. I mean, when God was dealing with Abraham, that Gentile that I mentioned, before he was even circumcised, before he became kosher and clean, God promised him that he was going to use his seed to bless the world. The whole world was going to be blessed through Abraham. And in the Old Testament period, you see hints about this going to happen. There's people like Rahab who lived in Jericho. There's people like Ruth who was a Moabitess and others who came into a living relationship with the God of Israel. Or someone like Job, for example. Job was not a Jew. Uh, one of the longest books in the Bible is devoted to, Jew, to Job. He was a foreigner. And you know Job is described in the Old Testament in terms very similar to the way in which Cornelius is described in the New Testament. He was a man, we're told, who was blameless and upright. Cornelius was blameless and upright because he feared God and shunned evil. Cornelius feared God and shunned evil. Now what does Peter say then to this man on the basis of that Old Testament history? In every nation, everyone, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now see what he's not saying? He's not saying all religions are the same to him, as we'll see in a moment. He's not saying everybody who lives a good life and is a good Jew or a good Hebrew or, or a good uh, uh, Muslim gets into heaven in the end. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying the kind of thing that one politician said this past week that, that gave that impression that good Buddhists, good Hindus, good Muslims, and good Christians are all basically going the same direction and they're going to meet the same goal in the end. That's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter is saying here is there is no genetic, racial, cultural, intellectual, social, historical reason why anyone cannot become a Christian. Zero. Anyone who does what is right is acceptable to him. What that means is, anyone who does what is right is acceptable to him. And at this stage, Cornelius has come a long way, but he's not yet a Christian. At this stage, Peter is not welcoming him into the family of God as a brother. At this stage, Peter is not baptized. He is not one of the people of God. At this stage, he's very close. He's very interested. He's very open. He's very sensitive. But he is not a believer at this stage. Not yet. Because there's a second point to this passage. Everyone, anyone, may become a Christian. You may become a Christian. But here's the second thing. Everyone, anyone, must become a Christian. There is no third route. Peter's message, once he gets into it, as he speaks to this man and his friends who are all gathered with him and relatives who are there, Peter's message picks up many of the themes of the earlier messages of Acts. One of the things as you're reading through Acts is to know that the, that the messages give you a broad outline. Any new messages usually only add bits to the original core outline of what the gospel presentation is in the book of Acts. And that's what happens here. Peter assumes, 
or, or Luke rather, assumes you've read the earlier one, so you know that that basic content's going to be in this message as well. And what he does is he just shows you a little, the little tweaks and differences that he does because he's speaking to a different audience. It isn't all that different. That's an interesting thing. It isn't all that different. Let me show you that he says three main things here. He says, first of all, that Jesus is the Lord of all. That, the God, that when God undertook to make peace with sinners and send the message of amnesty to rebel subjects, he did not send a prophet or an errand boy or even a mighty angel like Gabriel or Michael. He says this, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of shalom, of peace, through Jesus Christ, brackets, he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all. Jesus is the one through whom God makes peace with who? All. With all his rebel creation. Jesus is the Lord of all, not just the Lord of Jews. It comes through the Jews. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. It comes through the Jews. They were the people with whom God worked in space and time and history. Jesus is the Jew who has come into the world to attract men and women from all over the world to God. But God in Christ is the Lord of all, not just the Lord of Jews, but of Gentiles like Cornelius and his family. And not just the Lord of Gentiles, but of angels and demons. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is the universal ruler. He's not a mere local prophet or a tribal deity or a Jewish teacher. He's the Lord of the universe. And everything in it, He is the Lord of all. And as the Lord of all, He does several things. He fulfills Scripture. In the language that's used here is the echo of Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from, their dis from destruction. Or the language of Isaiah Chapter 52, he brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. All that, those references are, are under the surface here. He is alluding to those scriptures that Jesus fulfills. What does Jesus do? He not only fulfills scripture, he speaks peace, shalom. And in the book of Acts, shalom, peace, means salvation in its fullest sense. It means release from the judgment of God through the forgiveness of sins. It means freedom to serve God in holiness and righteousness. Because Jesus is the Lord of all His message of peace is for Jews and Gentiles alike. And here we find Peter offering the terms of this amnesty, the terms of this peace agreement to this rebel, Cornelius. For however good he was, he was a rebel against God, he was a sinner like you and I are. He stood in rebellion against God. Here is Peter, and he describes the terms of the amnesty to this rebel. The great king offers pardon, free pardon, to those who believe in his Son. And as Lord of all Jesus, thirdly, he demonstrates sovereignty. He's the Lord of all, and he is Lord of all. He demonstrates this by his life. He never does any bad things. He is tempted to do bad things like you are. But the Bible says he always conquers temptation, stronger than sin, because he keeps such an intimate, satisfying fellowship with God. He's the anointed messianic, with a messianic spirit. He demonstrates his lordship by healing the sick, defeating Satan and all his works. He is the Lord of all. 
And in the end, he demonstrates it by being raised from the dead. Not only does he demonstrate sovereignty, but he achieves salvation. Peter's talking about him as a man in his humanity. God was with him because he relied upon God. He was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power. And above all, in his humanity, he humbles himself and becomes a servant and lives his life in the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, what do they do with him? They hang him on a tree. Peter chooses that language carefully. He likes to use that phrase. He uses it in his letters. He's talking to someone who has at least some vague sense. He's a Roman soldier. He knows perfectly well why the Romans crucified Jews. Because they knew what being hung on a tree meant to a Jew. Being hung on a tree to a Jew meant being placed on the curse of God, under the curse of God. Peter knows that. He knows the Roman knows that. And he preaches to this Roman that Jesus was hung on a tree. That was the repudiation of Jesus. The repudiation of Jesus both by his countrymen and by God to be under the curse. And yet, God raised him from the dead. He goes under the curse not for his own sin, he's just said, this Jesus is without sin. So why is he on the cross? Well, he's on the cross not for his own sin. The curse that goes on him goes on him because he's been placed there by sinful human beings who, given the chance, with God in their hands, decide that they will murder their maker. And here's how Paul puts it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. God did not abandon the peacemaker to death. But God raises him. He justifies him. He justifies him by raising him. He vindicates him. And the resurrection, says Peter, was not of a ghost, not of a mere spirit. It was a bodily resurrection. We are witnesses of this, Peter says. We ate and drank with him. This Jesus had a new resurrection body with flesh and bones, with a glorified digestive tract, allows him to eat and drink wine, Chateau Neuf de Pape. Jesus did not disappear into some ethereal realm and leave creation to the dogs. He takes the created world of flesh and bones and fish and wine into the realm of God and sets the stage for the final part of the project. This part of the project is people being brought out of Gentile darkness into light. This part of the project brings men and women, puts them into a right relationship with God. This part of the project calls men and women like Cornelius into a living relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This part of the project gets us ready for the resurrection day when the second, phase two, comes and this dying, deteriorating body that I dwell in will then be made glorious like his risen glorious body. And these trees and buildings and this planet renewed, renewed without sin for us to dwell in forever. The project begins here with Cornelius. Now there's nobody, there's nobody, there's no human being, there's no color, there's no genetic background, there's no racial background, no intellectual, social background, there's nobody now not covered. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. 
and is able to forgive the sins of all. He is the judge, he is the Lord of all. Secondly, he says he's the judge of all. I just mentioned this in passing, verse 42. He's commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that no, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. The living and the dead kind of cover everybody, don't they? You're either alive or you're dead. Well, some of you are still alive, we hope. We'll check your pulse before you leave. But, but Jesus is the Lord of the living and the dead. He's the judge of the living and the dead. That means everybody. That means every human being will stand before him. He is the one who will fulfill that divine role on the day of the Lord, as predicted by many of the Old Testament texts. He is the Lord of all. He is the judge of all. He is the Savior of all. That means he's the only Savior there is for all. He is the Savior of all. Listen to, look at verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness. If you were to ask Peter, Peter, what do you think is the core heart of the gospel? Peter would say, well, of course it's this. It's the new covenant promise. What is at the heart of the new covenant promise? He's quoting it here, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Isaiah 33. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Jeremiah 31, No longer shall each say, teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. There's cleansing, you see. That's why there's nothing unclean. Can I put it to you like this? Some of you feel dirty because of things that have happened in your past, in your childhood perhaps, or in your youth, or growing up. Perhaps you were violated in some way. You've been abused in some way. You feel unclean. There are things you cannot say, perhaps even to a partner or to a best friend, things you cannot tell because you feel dirty, you feel unclean. Let me say, there is no one unclean enough that cannot be cleansed by Jesus. No one. You say, but you don't know the kind of life I live. You, know, you, you don't know the kind of bad things I've done. There is no one no one so bad that Jesus can't forgive, pardon, cleanse, and renew. That's why it's good news, you see. It's good news. It's gospel. He is the Savior of all. Well, Peter would have gone on in his sermon. We know that because Peter does go on. Uh, that's the only resemblance there is between me and Peter. He goes on, I go on. He had gone on to talk about the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't get a chance to go on and talk about the Holy Spirit because before he can say anything about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit turns up. He just turns up there, there and then. He convicts these people. They believe. They believe in the Lord Jesus. In a moment of time, the Spirit falls upon them. The language is amazing. As he was saying these things, look at this. While he was saying these things, in the middle of his sermon, well, I hope the Lord doesn't do that in the middle of mine tonight, but... but it's a great thing to happen if it does happen. While he was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. In other words, the Jews who were there were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because they'd been there at Pentecost. 
They were, they'd been there when the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. At the beginning, when they saw the power of God at work at Pentecost. That hadn't happened since, except to the Samaritans. So there was a Pentecostal moment for Jews, there was a Pentecostal moment for Samaritans, and now there's a Pentecostal moment for Gentiles. They're very similar. The Holy Spirit who glorified the Son at Pentecost, who fell on them, who fell on the Gentiles here, fell on the Samaritans in chapter 8. And the pouring out of the Spirit that happened in Pentecost, chapter 2 of Acts, is now being poured out on them here. This is a one-off event. This is part of a process of three major decisive moments in the book of Acts where the Spirit moves in this way. One of the marks is that people started speaking languages they'd never learned. I would have loved this. This would have come in very, very handy for me when I was trying to learn Greek and Hebrew. I just kind of, why did God not give me those gifts of Greek and Hebrew then, when I needed them before the exams? That would have been very useful then. There isn't a seminary student here who doesn't feel the same. But they got them right there. They got them. They were able to speak the dialects of people in other parts of the world. It was an amazing thing. Why does this happen? A whole host of reasons. I'll just select one of the reasons that's given in the Bible why this happened. And it happened this way. So that we knew that the gospel was for everybody in the world. Everybody in the world. And now what was foreshadowed by that great Holy Spirit moment is happening around the world. People around the world are believing in the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him, embracing Him as their Savior, following Him as their Lord. We're part of that movement. One day that movement will come to a great end, come to a great crescendo. When in the kingdom of God, people you've loved and lost people you've never known, will gather together with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Cornelius and Peter in the kingdom of God and sit down at the banquet. We'll all be home. We'll all be healthy. We'll all be with Jesus. And the new creation in its fullness will open up before us. That's what's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great moments in the history of the church that set us up for the great future that you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, we pray that you would fire us up with enthusiasm for this great hope, that you would, Lord, give us this great vision, a vision that we see somewhat reflected in the people gathered in this room tonight. And a vision, Lord, of something that even... We, we sense when we look at the statistics of who watches this program on the webcast from China and Europe and South America and throughout this continent. We, we thank you, Lord, that people are coming to know the Lord Jesus from all around the world. And it all started then. We praise you for that which began then and which we see furthered in our generation. We give you glory in Jesus' strong name. Amen.